0: Hello, I'm David Kern.
1: I'm Heidi White.
0: And I'm
2: Tim McIntosh.
0: And you are listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the Incurable Reader, on which we are going to be discussing Cormac McCarthy's All the Pretty Horses. But here's the big news. The best news. Tim's back! Yes. (laughs) Tim's
2: back. This is so exciting. Tim,
0: welcome back. You know, Tim, we had a great time talking to Karen Swallow Pryor about Jane Eyre. It was a good time. But there's nothing like being reunited
2: with your good buddies on a book that I love with all my heart, on a book that is in some ways like the exact opposite of Jane Eyre.
1: <laughs> so many ways it is the exact opposite of Jane Eyre. And Ayer. yet this in some ways for
2: it's similar. Well, I'm dying I'm to hear so how it's similar because I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know how it's similar. Like they're well, both bound pages with print on them. Well, they're both coming of age novels.
1: The Journey of the Self. Yeah, okay, maybe. that's fair.
0: yeah. They're, they're both very interior. Wait, while, that... While wait, other really? stuff is happening.
1: Already, controversy well, on okay, the we'll, show. We've got, okay, we've got we'll six weeks there. to
0: talk about that. Okay, so yes, we are here to discuss All the Pretty Horses. This is a novel that was published in 1992 by Cormac McCarthy, who is, you know, also known for, uh, perhaps best known now for The Road, which forwards to you on the Pulitzer Prize, uh, and of course, No Country for Old Men, which was made into a wonderful movie by the Coen brothers, and then... Um, a very bleak book called Blood Meridian, which Harold Bloom called one of the three most important novels ever written, uh, well, American novels ever written. Um, we can talk about the Cormac McCarthy factor if we want, but first, we need to talk about the Tim Factor. Heidi, do you agree? I feel like the Tim Factor is a key I part I always of
1: agree with talking about the Tim Factor. What is this the is... Tim
0: Factor? Well, okay, so you just, you just introduced the Tim Factor, Tim. You said this is one of the books you most adore is this you've you coined the phrase a heart book is mm-hmm. this is this like the platonic ideal of the tim heart book is this the quintessential tim heart book
2: or is that i mean is that a russian that's I mean, probably I a think russian it's probably a russian if it was if it was written by Amer- an american this is my heart if the category is american novels this is my heart book yeah Okay. I would say Cormac McCarthy is my heart author is a better way of saying it because it's it's not just this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all of his books. Okay, so as I said,
0: this was written in 92. It won the, the, the National Book Award and the National Books uh, Book Critics Circle Award and is the first book in a trilogy. So let's talk a little bit of Cormac McCarthy context here, Tim. When you say that he's your heart author, is this your favorite of his books? Have you read the Border Trilogy? What What's your... What's your view of the Cormac McCarthy canon as it stands right now? And I think I've read he's this done. book.
2: I hope he's not done. I think he I said really he hope was, he's not but done. sometimes people do things that they just, they just can't help it sometimes. There's been a rumor of a forthcoming novel right. about a female chemist, but it's been in the rumor mill for like a long, long time. So who yeah. knows? yeah, yeah. This will be probably my eighth read of All the Pretty Horses. But my favorite is a book called Sutry, mm. which um, people think it's his most autobiographical book. It's um, about, it takes place in Knoxville in the 50s. Uh, and just a little bit of biography about him. He was born and raised in Knoxville. And then he moved to Texas, to Texas, to, no, 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 to Santa Fe, And the subject of his books shifted from Appalachia to the West when he made that move. Hmm. But oddly enough, the road is, it it seems to, it's post-apocalyptic, but it seems to take place in what was Knoxville. So he kind of returned to Hmm. Knoxville later in his writing.
0: Yeah. So he had, I mean, Sutri was his third novel. I mean, he's written several books that are, you know, classics. Have you read the whole trilogy? Yes. Oh, so it was his fourth A novel? A
2: few times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. It was his fourth.
0: I wonder what I missed. I missed something in there in my counting.
2: Is, is this second, your second favorite, third favorite, fourth? Like, I think mean? it's probably my second favorite. Is it the one you've read the most? Yeah, it's the one that I've read the most out okay. of all of them. Okay. And like every time I could have read this book 12 times easily, but I have to like, don't eat dessert Again, for your entree, Tim, don't eat dessert again for your entree. Okay. Well, we're going to, I want to come back to, this is going to be great. I've got,
0: I've got some paper here and a pen. I got so many questions for you and I'm going to write some down while we let Heidi talk about this. Heidi, you've read this book previously. Once
1: I have listened to this book because of David and Tim, because of the Tim factor and the David factor. So, I was like, I want to read books that my friends love. And so I listened to it. I loved listening to it. It's a, it's a it, great audio Oh my gosh, I loved it. And it sounds so good just because his language is so completely unique. He has the mm-hmm. Cormac McCarthy style. And so hearing it, it was just, I loved that. I have also read The Road. I have read Blood Meridian, which was really intense. Like that- do not start with Blood Meridian if you want to keep your soul. That is such an intense novel. It's so um, intense. I am so curious about Harold Bloom's, like, state of inner peace right now. Um, and then also, I have... Watched. are you saying
0: where is dead harold bloom right now is that what your question well is?
1: <laughs> um that's that's a question for another day is, that, that is, is harold far, far, far Bloom still alive my, no, no he, he died, died last a year. year ago yeah oh did he yeah. really yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> well you
0: know what his three he says the three best american novels are blood meridian absalom absalom by faulkner and moby dick really
1: I've just, I'm really curious about that, but I feel like that's a rabbit trail. I also watched a uh, a production of Sunset Limited, mm-hmm. uh, which was great, and I that think probably the Danielle closest Jackson. thing to a yes, and Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. And I would say, based on what I've read, I've also read No Country for Old Men, um, and that's it. Uh, based on that, I would say that that's the closest that I came to understanding almost like a thesis statement of his metaphysics and belief about the world is Mm. in Sunset Limited. Um, So anyway, I'm sure we'll talk more and more just about how his kind of despairing nihilistic view, or is it, you know, (laughs) that kind of thing. Um, So he is just, he's an author to be reckoned with. He's an author to be familiar with if you care about American letters, but he's not going to be everybody's favorite. The people who love him, love him. Mm -hmm. So, and I feel like I understand, like, I just, I remember the first time I felt like, oh, Tim is a really, really interesting person that I want to get to know even more was when I asked him what his favorite play was. And he told me that it was the one about dead horses. What was the name of that play?
2: Oh, Equus. Oh my gosh. (laughs) One day we've got to read that on close reads. We've got to do Equus on close reads. It's a play
1: though, right? Not a novel. Yeah, it's a play, right? It's a play. It's a script.
0: I suppose you could do it on- the plays the thing once you've done all of Shakespeare,
1: and it's just like straight up darkness. And so Tim, Tim's got <laughs> wait, a hold streak. up, hold up, hold up, that's He's not got true. A of that's the dark not in him. true
2: about Equus. It's like it's not straight up. I when we eventually do that, I'll make my case. It is. It's dark, but it's not straight. I object to the. It's straight not up completely part of dark.
1: Do you remember in the Lego movie? when they sing which I did not expect that to be the next yeah, phrase that came out that was out a of your segue. Mouth. about when they sing the song about um Batman and they sing Darkness, no parents, super rich, kinda makes it better. <laughs> and that is like I whenever I think of the soul of Tim, I start singing singing that mm. in the back of my head.
0: <laughs> okay, so let's talk about this book though, because it is true that Cormac McCarthy has written some, some dark-ish books. Uh, you, you use the phrase nihilism, Heidi, um, that there's a kind of unique McCarthy brand of that. But this book is not... It's not that... Compared to his other stuff, it's not that bleak. I, I actually True. personally do not believe this book is bleak at all. I think it has bleak parts to it, but I don't think it is a fundamentally bleak book um, or has a bleak view... Or has a nihilistic view of the world in the end. We'll get to that, though. Um, should we do a quick summary? I mean, this is a kid, John Grady Coley, 16, has been raised on his grandfather's ranch in San Angelo, Texas. His grandfather dies. The ranch is going to be sold. He rides off <laughs> uh, with his friend, um, Rawlings, Rollins
2: and, uh, various. And I, I want to add something. Um, his mother and father, unbeknownst to him, have divorced. Right, she's right. moved away. And he, his father seems to be wasting away from some sort of disease. And I want to say to readers, if you're hearing this and you've read the first part of the book and you just heard David in my description and you're like, I didn't get any of that in the first part of the book. Welcome to the first part of this book. It's so, it's opaque at the beginning. It will get much less opaque about 30 or 40 pages in.
0: And it. It is kind of slow to reveal its point. Yeah. As, as purposes and, and even its direction. Yeah. Um per- purposefully, I think. Um so they they head off and and so far, you know, at the end of the reading for the first episode, they've hooked up with uh with another kid. Um Blevins. Blevins, yeah, who is of questionable character and indeterminate age. And comic disposition. And comic disposition. Um, Oh, one thing we need to talk about is um, the humor in this book. Mm -hmm. Because I think what people a lot of times miss the first time they read it is how funny it is. And so I'd, I'd like to be keeping an eye on that. Yeah. Tim, as we dive into the conversation in this section, I have a very simple question for you. What is it that you love about this book so much? So what keeps you coming back it's a to very it in, simple in particular? Simple. Oh, the question is, I didn't say that it was huh. a simple answer.
2: <laughs> I think that Cormac McCarthy has all of the traits of like the really supreme novelists. I think first of all, the book's a page turner. It, it, I think it's a little bit difficult to get into, but I think by page 40, once we, especially once we meet Blevins, the book kind of takes off we don't really know what the book's about. It's just about kind of a crossing into Mexico, but what's going to happen is not really clear until probably the next section that we read for Mm. next week. So I think he's, his books are really, to me, really riveting. I want to keep reading forward. I think he has an uncommon ability with dialogue. I just think his ability to capture his subjects, speaking, um, their, their dialect, their habits, their cadences, I think is as good as it's like Mark Twain, I think was a master. I think Coynt McCarthy is a master. I think his prose, I think some of his prose is some of the most beautiful prose I've read in any novel. I actually want to read just a section from page 30. Um, I think we're all probably on the same pagination. So the, Big middle paragraph on page 30. This is about John Grady Cole and his cousin, his best friend, Rollins. They rode out along the fence line and across the open pastureland. The leather creaked in the morning cold. They pushed the horses into a lope. The lights fell away behind them. They rode out on the high prairie where they slowed the horses to a walk and the stars swarmed around them out of the blackness. They heard somewhere in that tenantless night a bell that tolled and ceased where no bell was, and they rode out on the round dias of the earth, which alone was dark and no light to it, and which carried their figures and bore them up into the swarming stars, so that they rode not under but among them. And they rode once jaunty and circumspect, like thieves newly loosened in that dark electric like young thieves in a glowing orchard, loosely jacketed against the cold, and ten thousand worlds for the choosing. I'm going to be important paragraph. Claim. By the way, it is an important paragraph, and I'll be honest. Sometimes I read some of that prose, and I don't quite know what he means. And I think that contributes to my enjoyment of it. Like ten thousand worlds for the choosing. Does that mean that their future is open to them? Does that mean, I mean, that, that could mean a whole host of different things. I think it's, um, it's a very poetic conclusion. And I think readers, when you're first encountering McCarthy, it might be tempting to be like, wait, I don't get it. So there's something wrong with me as a reader. No, I, I would kind of like give yourself some liberty to say, I'm not quite sure what he means there, but I'm going to keep tracking. The same goes for the Spanish there's a lots of Spanish in this book mm-hmm. for me. I read it without doing much translation the first time that I did it. And I really enjoyed it. I think I know enough Spanish now and I can do enough kind of on the fly translation that um, I can usually track what's being communicated in the Spanish. But the mm-hmm. first time that I read it, I was pretty lost on the Spanish. Okay. So last thing that I like about him is he is a profound profound thinker and um, Heidi mentioned that the, the play uh, Sunset Limited kind of reveals some of the things that are at stake for him, kind of like some of his metaphysical convictions. And I think that's one of the aspects of his authorship that I enjoy the most. He has a fascinating, fascinating view of the world and we'll get into it during these podcasts. Should we dive into just straight away into kind of
0: trying to get a grip for how he writes, because I think that's one of the things that, that holds people back the most. I think people can, you know, we'll be able to talk about the themes in the book probably at the end of this episode, but also over the next several weeks and dive into the plot and all that kind of stuff. But I do feel like we need to get grounded in the way he approaches writing fiction formally. Heidi, you said you were excited to talk about that in term particularly about mm-hmm. what it does to the reader, because I think that there are, you know, I think that there are some thematic things he's trying to get across uh, via the form. And then there's also the experience that it creates for the reader. So what did you mean by that? That uh, was a text that, that you sent to, yeah, to to us. Yes,
1: Yep. In the group text, I said, I want to talk about what uh, his, polysynthetic style does to the reader so he i mean anybody just with their eyes traveling down any like open your open your book to any page of the novel and you'll see he has really long sentences juxtaposed with really short sentences and his very long sentences have hardly any commas instead of commas you have the word and so it's da 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 and da 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 and da 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 so and it's I really liked Like I said, I really liked listening to that um, because that's how people tell a story. When you, when you tell something to somebody else, you use a lot of the word and you don't stop and then pause and then use like, you know, a prepositional phrase to begin your next sentence, right? The way that you write, we write differently than we speak. Mm -hmm. And so um, this, but Cormac McCarthy really doesn't. He says a lot of things that people don't say in conversations, you know, like, um, you know, comparing Javelinas to the mind of God or something like he, he says a lot of really, really, you know, deep stuff like you mentioned, Tim. Um, but, and he doesn't his his words aren't necessarily what people say in normal conversations. And he makes really odd comparisons sometimes. But the way that he writes, the form of the writing is very I don't want to say conversational as much as it is like storytelling, the way that someone would orally tell a story, and so it paces the story. It forces the reader to read um, at at the pace that he wants you to read to slow down mm-hmm. and to pay attention to each. It's like phrase. A, it's like
0: a poet using lines.
1: Yes, and to connect and and to connect. Various ideas and images, um, and comparisons within the same sentence in the same paragraph that are a bit unexpected and take some take some attention on the part of the reader. So, as Tim said, his stories have a lot of action. There's a lot of they're they are page turners, uh, but the writing itself is very literary, and so it forces a reader to not just focus on the action, mm-hmm. but to focus on the words and the comparisons. Um, your eyes don't just slide down the page. Um, and I, I like that about about Cormac McCarthy very, very much. And he is nothing like Hemingway. His He is not concrete. He uses a lot of abstract comparisons, but he's also extremely descriptive. Um, which I like a lot. You can just see in your mind's eye the sweeping grandeur of the of 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 the landscape and the setting. Um and yeah, I just think he's such an unexpected writer. And I appreciate it. Like I get to the end of every page or section and I kind of like close the book for a second and I'm like, Wow, that is completely unique. There's nobody like him.
2: There's a way in which um I think he's like Hemingway, I think you're right, Heidi. I think that like his prose is much more, I'm reluctant to say ornamental, but it's a lot more descriptive in a way that Hemingway really wants to kind of take out the scalpel and just whittle the prose down Mm -hmm. to like basic, simple words. Um, And so I think that in that way, Cormac McCarthy and Hemingway are really different, but I think in one way he's similar to Hemingway. And I think he's also similar to Faulkner in that he, he presents phenomenon to you, but he rarely tells you what it means. Yeah, And it demands a very close reading. And so if you're going to sit down um, and hope to kind of like knock out 30 pages of, McCarthy in an hour or something like that it, it you probably are we reading it too quickly <laughs> would you would you say that if you're gonna try to do that then you should listen to the audiobook yeah maybe listen to the audiobook but he's also telling you things that there'll be an encounter that we have with um, as the the group of travelers is heading to Mexico they're gonna meet two groups of people at like different parts in the narrative and one of them is a kind band of travelers. And one of them might be a group of slave owners and slave traders. And he does not tell you which is which. And when you realize, oh my goodness, they're talking to slave traders and the slave traders want to buy, they're trying to buy human flesh right now. When you realize that it's really terrifying, it's really terrifying. But McCarthy's not going to tell you Hey, these are a bunch of slave traders. Beware, reader, beware. This is a frightening moment. No, he's just going to plunge you into it. And you have to kind of figure it out by reading it closely. And I think in that way, even though he's really different from Hemingway, remember how we had the conversation about um, um, Jake in The Sun Also Rises, comes out of the cathedral and his fingers are wet, but we don't know why exactly. Did he mm-hmm. dip them in holy water? Mm-hmm. Did he wipe away tears? We don't really know. Clement McCarthy will do that a lot. He'll give you phenomenon, but won't give you an interpretation of what it's supposed to mean. But he does want you to get something out of it, and a reader will.
1: And he fits in his interpretations in, like, random spots. Like, on page five, um, there's a really long, long paragraph um, describing – the setting in the Comanche and the Indian nations. And it ends with, I'm not even going to read the whole sentence because it's like 20 Mm -hmm. lines long, but I'll read a section of the sentence. Um, He says, nation and ghost of nation passing in a soft corral across that mineral waste to darkness, bearing lost to all history and all remembrance, like a grail, the sum of their secular and transitory and violent lives. Like that is... As David said, extremely poetic, several lines of beautiful poetry, but it's prose. Uh, and it is an interpretation. It tells you exactly what to think of this nation and this people, but he fits it into a physical description that disconnected from the storyline itself so that you're not, he's not just telling something. He's, he takes those interpretive statements, writes them beautifully and poetically and kind of sticks them in unexpected places, and then tells you a really raw gripping story that ties this descriptive disconnected moment, like all together throughout the story. So he really is an incredibly brilliant writer and he does take a scalpel to his writing, but it, as you said, it forces you to pay attention. He takes the scalpel to his writing, but he does kind of throw in these interpretive statements that tell you, like, I'm writing a violent, secular, transitory story about a people who is lost in its own nation. So, the, And then I'm going to tell you the rest of the story, and you're going to have to remember this.
0: So that whole, that whole paragraph on page five, uh, combined with the first paragraph of the book, are two of my favorite passages in the whole book and in all of... I'll say American literature, and one of the reasons is because I think of how. So, Heidi, you you mentioned that he writes in a he writes he basically is employing the rhetorical stylistic scheme of polysyndeton, and I think that recognizing that is really essential to understanding the whole approach for Cormac McCarthy to literature to storytelling. Heidi, you mentioned it's like telling stories, and I think that's a big part of it as well because. Like polysyndeton is, you, know, you can look it up any in encyclopedia or something like that, and it's it comes from an ancient Greek term which means bind, bind, to to bound to bind together with or something like that, and so it's the idea of these clauses are being bound together by the word and. I don't think that it's a coincidence that he is trying to use a a form that is at this point when he's writing primarily employed in ancient literature. And especially in the King James Bible, because I think that what he is trying to do is he is trying to tie his story back to millennia before when it takes place. I think he's sort of trying to tell an Old Testament story in that takes place in the mm-hmm. 1940s. I think you're right, David.
1: Totally agree.
0: And I think that he is also, I think it's super important what you said, Heidi, about it being like a... a an, I think I think he is recreating oral tradition. I think he is writing in the vein of the epics. I think he is responding to them and being influenced by them, and by the the notion of oral tradition itself, which is how indigenous people would have primarily passed on their stories. And so I think that the way he writes is in service of those those goals. I think he's trying to tell an. I think he's trying to recreate oral tradition. I think he's trying to tell an Old Testament story. And I think he's trying specifically to tie the the way his stories to you know age-old ancient ways of storytelling. Um, and I think that the paragraph that you just read and the first paragraph of the book reveal that. I think that they are like crucial. Those two paragraphs are crucial to understand the whole book and perhaps even. The whole Cormac McCarthy larger project. And I'm using that loosely. I'm not saying Cormac McCarthy had this like project and he set out to write these novels. But if you want to understand McCarthy, I think you have to read the first paragraph and the
2: paragraph that you read really closely. Like, can, can I say something else about that, David? Yeah. Yeah. If somebody's interested in this book and they want to keep reading the rest of the Border Trilogy, there's something really fascinating that happens in the Border Trilogy. And I think it, it, it's worth kind of like foreshadowing what happens in these other two books because it has a direct bearing on what happens in this the book. The 60
0: Pages of A Boy and the Wolf?
2: Yeah, the that's the second book, The Crossing. Yeah. Um, the paragraph that I read from page 30, there's kind of this, this, there's this hauntedness about the geography of Texas and Mexico. And it is a spiritual haunting, I would say. The farther we get into the border trilogy, the more that haunting recedes and the more that machinery comes forward. And so I think that Cormac McCarthy, I think he is wanting to tell kind of an epic tale. And I think he is wanting to tell kind of like, let's call it a a biblical tale in biblical prose, like Old Testament prose. And part of, the the trip that our heroes are going on, I think, is, an, is a, a desire that they don't really understand themselves, that John Grady Cole doesn't really even understand himself, that he is going into a land that is not civilized right. because he thinks that there is something there that he's missing in the civilized world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the big riddles of the book about whether or not he – finds it there's and kind of whether or not it's worth looking for it the, in a way there's kind of an inversion of the Israelites
0: leaving Egypt story but also a, a, something running parallel to it because it, you know that having to go into the desert to find the land of milk and honey he is looking for as you said something that he has never had available to him he's been in civilization but all the structures that are supposed to go with civilization including the romance of the ranch have kind of either been stripped away from him or have fallen apart. Mm-hmm. And so he and his cousin, they ride across the river, you know, mm-hmm. um, there's, that's a very Mark Twain thing. You hit the river and you go. Mm-hmm. Um, that's like the it's a very es-
1: biblical thing. Well, too. I, w-
0: I was going to say it's like the essential movement of American literature is to hit the river and go, or to be put on the river and sold. Um, mm. The river is, the river is kind of the essential American land, the, the it's, sort a of, it's a demarcation, line, right? demarcation yeah. in American yeah, a
1: literature. Line. Yeah, so you a cross the river, a border. Yeah, yeah, border, border, truly. Yeah. And even
2: when Israel crossed the Jordan, they're marking it by stacking stones. I mean, it's it's right. it's the moment upon entering the promised land. I think that observation that you had, David, is like in a way this is kind of a reverse of the Exodus. It's a going from a place that has kind of like been a promised land, and it's a seeking to. Find the wilderness again Yeah and, and like
1: Maybe Or maybe It is The exodus Right He's He's been Essentially Abandoned By I mean Through the death Of his grandfather And actually Abandoned by his mother
0: Who's pursuing Her own Dreams
1: I That That scene in the hotel When he's watching his mom And she doesn't Even know he's there Like it's like The saddest thing um having a 15-year-old son myself. <laughs> yeah. He's only 16.
0: I mean, and that's so, kind of sets up the action of the book, right?
1: Yes, and but my point is there it could also be a an attempt to leave behind civilization as in the form of Egypt, right now he's in servitude now he's in bondage, he is not an owner, and she absolutely refuses to lease the land to him, and so he leaves it behind and goes in search of freedom, hmm. which is the exodus story and then when what he encounters there remains to be seen i mean uh, and so but i i i didn't see it as a reversal. I saw it as an actual exodus story, and that exodus story then that image of crossing a river is, you know, that's an archetypal image of death from ancient literature until yeah. now. You yeah. pass through the waters of death. You're submerged under them. The horses of course are extremely symbolic and they almost lose their footing. Right. And, and they have well, to they be strip led off, by men. They strip off yes. their clothes.
0: They tie everything in their, In their boots and they're riding in the moonlight. It's a
1: death. It's a death and a rebirth image. And then now they are in, hopefully, a promised land, which then gives Cormac McCarthy a chance to explore whether or not there is indeed the promise of a promised land anywhere.
0: (laughs) Which allows him to respond to the myth of the West because the whole go West Mm -hmm. young man thing was, first of all, a, a bunch of bunk that was created by newspaper people. And But it was also the thing that generated so much of Westward expansion, so much of this exploration and, and people seeking their fortunes was people who, most of the people who went West left because they had to. They left Virginia or, or Missouri or Boston or Ohio because what they had there at their homes was not enough. And so they, you know, some of it was greed, some of it was just looking for opportunity and options. And I think McCarthy is responding to that mythology by creating the sixteen-year-old kid who's already west, he's already in the place where most of those people went—San Angelo, Texas, West Texas—and he has to keep going. He has to cross the river and keep, you know, keep looking, keep searching for what was not available in the in the place where what, what did they call it—the um, Go West, Young Man—the was the what's the name—Manifest man- De- Destiny. Yeah, he was where Manifest Destiny was supposed to have been found. And he has to keep going. Tim, mm-hmm. you're looking pensive and like give something on the tip of your tongue. And so I'm going to stop talking and let you do it.
2: Let you take over. Not pensive. Um, I think at this part of the book, we don't really know what John Grady wants. And I think that like all of the reasons to go on a journey have been presented to us. He's estranged from his mother. His relationship to the farm that he grew up on is being severed. Uh, his parents are divorcing and he, but he could very easily stay in Texas. He could very easily go to New Mexico. He could very easily go to Colorado. And we find out pretty quickly that we have to look for it. He is, has something, there is something about his relationship to horses that is exemplary. And we'll, there's a scene that we'll find, I think maybe in the third section of this book, where his ability with horses is kind of observed by McCarthy. And so this is a young man, though only 16, with extraordinary, extraordinary talent. Why Mexico? Why does he go to Mexico? And I think this is For me, the essential question of the book, but it's a very slow presentation. The question is a very slow presentation. I understand all the reasons why he would leave, you know, like the relation with his parents, the loss of the farm. Those are all great reasons to head out of town. But he chooses to go to a place that he knows no one, where it's a language that he speaks, but it's his second language. And it's the language that Rollins doesn't speak at all. That's kind of the question for me. And I think there is something about the adventure that we're going on that is capital R romantic. So very much a, I mean, like, I mean- like almost according to the English Romantics, that's like about the end of where McCarthy and the English (laughs) Romantics, like that's the end of the comparison. I don't want to overblow that or anything like that. But I think there is something about the, the English Romantics vision of nature, how untamed and kind of imbued with the spiritual that it is. I think there's something deep in us that resonate, at least I really resonate with mm. that. And I think John Grady Cole really resonates with that, that desire to explore something unknown and imbued with deep spiritual potential. Mm.
0: Okay, so the passage that Heidi read, I want to read that extended passage and go on to the next page because I was thinking about this Mexico thing. And I want to know what you think if, if this passage helps explain that. So I want to read that whole paragraph and it's going to take a couple minutes, but I think it's worth it because I think it's like the, it's the introduction to the book. I mean, it's the, so at the top of page five in the evening, he saddled his horse and rode out West from the house. The wind was much abated and it was very cold. And the sun sat blood red and elliptic under the reefs of the blood red cloud before him. He rode where he would always choose to ride out where the western fork of the old Comanche road coming down out of the Kiowa country to the north passed through the westernmost section of the ranch, and you could see the faint trace of it bearing south over the low prairie that lay between the north and middle forks of the Concho River. At the hour he'd always choose when the shadows were long and the ancient road was shaping before him in the rose and encanted light like a dream of the past where the painted ponies and the riders of that lost nation came down out of the north with their faces chalked and their long hair plaited, and each armed for war which was their life and the women and children and women with children at their breasts all of them pledged in blood and redeemable in blood only when the wind was in the north you could hear them the horses and the breath of the horses and the horses hooves that were shod and rawhide and the rattle of lances and the constant drag of the travoi poles in the sand like the passing of some enormous serpent and the young boys naked on wild horses jaunty as circus riders and hazing wild horses before them and the dogs trotting with their tongues loll, and foot slaves following half naked and sorely burdened and above all the low chant of their traveling song which the riders sang as they rode nation and ghost of nation passing in a soft cor- coral across that mineral waste to darkness bearing lost to all history and all remembrance like a grail the sum of their secular and transitory and violent lives I'm going to keep going here because I think this next bit kind of responds to what you were saying, Tim. He rode with the sun coppering his face and the red wind blowing out of the west. He turned south along the old war trail and he rode out of the crest of a low rise and dismounted and dropped the reins and walked out and stood like a man come to the end of something. There was an old old horse skull in the brush and he squatted and picked it up and turned it in his hands frail and brittle bleached paper white he squatted in the long light holding it the comic book teeth loose in their sockets the joints in the cranium like a ragged welding of the bone plates the muted run of sand in the brain box when he turned it what he loved in horses was what he loved in men the blood and the heat of the blood that ran them All his reverence and all his fondness and all the leanings of his life were for the ardent hearted and they would always be so and never be otherwise. He rode back in the dark. The horse quickened its step. The last of the the day's light fanned slowly upon the plain behind him and withdrew again down the edges of the world in the cooling blue of shadow and dusk and chill and a few last chitterings of birds sequestered in the dark and wiry brush. He crossed the old trace again and he must turn the pony up onto the plain and homeward. But the warriors would ride on in that darkness they'd become, rattling past with their Stone Age tools of war in default of all substance, and singing softly in blood and longing south across the plains to Mexico. So that's just ridiculous. It's so good.
1: It's ridiculous. The horse skull thing isn't just whatever. How do you get to be such a genius? <laughs>
0: I think it's responding. I mean, you ask why he does he go to Mexico? And I think this moment a lot of authors would say he rode to the rise and looked out across at Mexico, and he had a longing for some ancient thing. but that's what's happening here, and there's like something deep in him that is pulling him there, and mm-hmm. this is this passage is ex, is kind of revealing why that is, and so when when I th- in a way, I'd never thought about this before until this time, but in a way at the end of that, when it says that he crossed the old trace and he must turn the pony up onto the plane and homeward. But the warriors, well, the warriors, they got to ride on in that darkness that they'd become rattling past with their stone age tools of war and singing softly in blood and longing South across the plains to Mexico. And so in a way, I feel like when McCarthy tells us that he, he had to go home, but you know, those guys got to keep going at that moment. That's the clue that he was always going to go to Mexico.
2: Yeah yeah i think you're right
1: so this a couple of days ago our mutual friend matt bianco sent me a link to an article by eva braun who's a homeric scholar a classic scholar teaches at saint john's in santa fe actually um and she and the article was about a, a comparison between novels and mythology. And the question of the article is, is a novel the same thing as a myth? How are they the same? How are they different? Right. So, um, and she makes, she makes a case that I completely agree with. Hmm. Um, But it's a little bit beside the point. I'm going to kind of make the, I'm going to say her case and then I'm going to move on and talk about this novel. She makes the case that the world needs myths, but does not need novels. Right. That's what the, that, that's what the, um, the thesis of, of the article is. But so in, in proving that case, she makes, uh, several points about, uh, characteristics of novels and characteristics of mythology. And I think that Cormac McCarthy, and here's where I'm, I've just been sitting here thinking maybe Harold Bloom is right about blood Meridian, because I think blood Meridian is the novel that does this the best that he's ever written so far. Uh, um, but this novel does it too. She makes the case that a main character in a mythological story versus a novel, that a, a mythological character that endures is a character that has some kind of intense experience in which they have to make a, uh, a series of choice, either one or a series of choices that affects not only their own fate, but the fate of the entire mm. nation. Right, um, and and that then throughout time, that mythological character can be inhabited by the characteristics of each generation. Mm-hmm. Right, so you can have somebody play Hamlet, and you can make you can put that setting in you know twenty twenty one, and it would still be the same story, but it would also be now our story, the story of our generation. Right, and so. I think that Cormac McCarthy comes pretty close to that. His novels have this mythological character to it. They're firmly entrenched in America and they are an American story, but they also have this kind of transcendent um, exploration of the human experience that although it's fully entrenched in our own country, it also tells kind of the whole universal human story. And I think out of all his characters, John Grady Cole does that the best. He's almost like Achilles or Odysseus. Like he has this quality to him that is every man and yet transcends every man. Like I've never met a guy and I'm I'm a woman, so I don't necessarily relate to John Grady Cole. But every guy I've ever talked to is like, I feel like I could be him. I feel like he's me.
0: And I feel like, like I could be Blevins. Okay, I'm just
1: kidding um, I, I <laughs> the so of all the about jokes that. right um, yeah. uh he also has like this jester archetype oh, yeah. to him, yes. right? Blevins does, but he's also a scapegoat character, like there's all kinds of things that just like so archetypal about these characters, uh and that it's like mythological in scope um mm. and and I think that's why when we and and the polysynthetic. Uh, style adds to that is what I'm kind of tie it back to what we were talking about. Um, I really like what you said about him, like reaching backwards into the epics. Um, and then I have one more thing to say that I just noticed right now I had kind of a light bulb moment. right when Tim's sound uh, effect on his
0: computer went. Yeah. Sorry yes. about that. <laughs> I was like,
1: um, perfect timing. Uh, yes. So I just listened to, I listened to a podcast that I love called Lord of Spirits. It's on ancient faith radio. Um, Mm. And it's about kind of like the spiritual world and how it connects to the physical worlds from a Christian perspective. It's really an amazing podcast. Uh, But I just listened a few days ago to an episode that they recorded that talked about the different points of the compass and what they represent in ancient literature, particularly the Bible. So, listen to what they what talk about, like north, south, east, and west. So, the south in the Bible, almost every time the south is mentioned, it's mentioned in context of an ancient people rising up against the people of God. Mm. So, like the Midianites or Cush, the Cushites, whatever, those are all the southern peoples. And so, in in the biblical sense, there's this kind of symbolic meaning of, this, of going south or something coming from the south that is more ancient and both threatening and yet very like uh, deep and primeval about this Southern imagery in ancient literature. It's not just in the Bible, but they were talking specifically about the Bible. And there's there's this savagery to the Southern nations that the people of God have to defend against and sometimes call upon for help. So it's not a negative image, but it's a deep, primeval, ancient, kind of um, bloody kind of mm. image. And, um, and meaning to Southern, uh, to the Southern nations. And as I was, I just had this moment of connecting that to this Mm. book, Mm. right? As, as, what you were talking about about the wilderness, Tim, what David was talking about um, in reading that chapter, that there, there is something so primeval about Mexico in this story. Uh, and the entrance into Mexico is a leaving behind of the trappings of civilized life, mm-hmm. but it's not necessarily negative. Mm-mm. There's something, what well, used the word spiritual earlier, Tim, and I think that that's it. It's like this inter, entering into a passage into mystery, into a deep. Understanding of suffering um, and of the cost of being of living a fully human life that's explored by John Grady and Rollins here. And we and with Blevins entering into it, we see that I think the contrast between Blevins' youth and his um, what should be his innocence, and yet he's the mo- more experienced out of all of them in violence at least that's what we see so mm-hmm. far. Like, there the contrast between those things um, and how frightening that would be to meet a child of that. Um, that that's more violent and worldly wise than you are. It's, it's kind of scary. So anyway, I'm I'm done talking. Those are those are not necessarily interpretive as much as just like I'm making these connections even as we're talking. Well,
2: I think that is a great tie-in because because Mexico will be this place of promise. Like our main characters face the potential of butchery. Like basically.
1: It's a savage bloody It's a
2: savage
0: bloody place.
1: Deep ancient and also
0: has some of the most civilization in the book too
2: ironically. Right. It's right. That's right. And there's something also this is I, it, this is maybe a reach but um we see especially later in the border trilogy that there's an affection for the hospitality of Mexico. Yep. Yep. That is um ancient. really deeply <laughs> It's ancient and it's so deeply esteemed, especially by the second character, the second protagonist of the second book. So that's another aspect. I think that's kind of like flavoring the stew that we're in. That was a good metaphor, given that you're talking about hospitality. Stew, right. And cowboys. Yep.
0: Cowboys-ish. Well, I love this directional stuff because even in that passage that I read where he's thinking about Mexico, it talks about how he's riding west and then... You know, he like rides west between the winds of the north and the southern area where the the warriors would ride, and so being he's on this like western plateau between these two worlds, these two ages almost, and that's where he's stuck now. And the notion of what is actually civilization is going to be like how you how you define that um, is going to be a really crucial part of of the rest of the book. Now, I got to read that long passage should we should we touch on the opening passage which is probably my favorite opening sentence of any book ever if i'm being honest other than like there was a boy named eustace clarence scrub and he almost deserved it
1: that's a great one too should
0: we should we talk about this yes i would love to heidi do you have we all read something Tim, did you get to read something Mm -hmm. okay well then we'll give it back to heidi heidi you want to read the first paragraph
1: first paragraph Oh, it's just so good the just even that first line the candle flame and the image of the candle flame who puts a word like candle flame twice in the same sentence Cormac McCarthy that's who the candle flame and the image of the candle flame caught in the pier glass twisted and righted when he entered the hall and again when he shut the door he took off his hat and came slowly forward the floorboards creaked under his boots In his black suit, he stood in the dark glass where the lilies leaned so palely from their wasted cut glass vase. Along the cold hallway behind him hung the portraits of forebears only dimly known to him, all framed in glass and dimly lit upon the narrow wainscoting. He looked down at the guttered candle stub. He pressed his thumbprint in the warm wax pooled on the oak veneer. Lastly, he looked at the face so caved and drawn among the folds of funeral cloth, the yellowed mustache, the eyelids, paper thin. That was not sleeping. That was not sleeping. All right, David. Why do you love this opening so much? I've been
0: trying to write a version of that first sentence for 15 years, since I first read this. I've written so much 've wasted so much effort that I could have been writing a whole story trying to recreate this paragraph and trying to figure out what he's doing and i've the, the question everyone has is like it's not just the polysynthetic binding together that that McCarthy does, but there are the repetitions as well Tim as a writer, why do you think uh, that he does this. Yeah. Heidi mentioned who uses the word candle flame twice in the first line. Somebody who's super Cormac McCarthy. In their ability. Yeah. yeah, right. Confidence, right. right? Why does he do that though? Like he's this is not a guy who wastes a lot of space, a lot of words. He still writes on his on his typewriter, man. And that typewriter he uses not the greatest machine ever. I've used it, um, not his particular one, but the same style. He continues to use it to this day. Doesn't waste words. He's very careful. Yet he uses this kind of repetition. Why? What do you think?
2: Like, why does he, why the repetition? Is that what you're asking, David?
0: Or yeah, like, like, Heidi drew attention to that. I mean, it's kind of easy thing to draw attention mm-hmm. to. Is it just
2: that he's, you know, that good? Well, I think it's a little bit of an outlier for him. I think he does not tend to repeat himself all that often. Sometimes he doesn't dialogue. He'll, mm-hmm. he'll have a character character. Um, just repeat word for word what another character is saying and you have to read a vocal inflection into it you know like Mm. Blevins is going to say some really dumb things and Rollins is going to echo what he says and there's a vocal inflection that needs to be read into Rollins's reply but I think of his prose I don't think of his prose as often being very repetitive I do think like the things that we mentioned earlier about how he kind of piles prepositional phrases onto each other I think is one of his great gifts. We, off the air, I we were we, I side note. Side sidebar. The, the Great Courses did about maybe seven years ago a like 25 part series on writing great sentences. And I was like, okay, I gotta get with this. I gotta get with this. The whole thesis of the author, the presenter was that we have this kind of Heming, we, we we teach our students to write in a short and simple style, which is kind of the command of Strunk and White. And Strunk and White are great. There's close to kind of like the priest classes we have in writing circles. But the thesis of that essay is the really great writers actually really like to write in, a long, in long sentences with clauses and their clauses walk in time Forwards and backwards. So typically, a prepositional phrase to begin a sentence is a step backward in time to kind of set the scene, and then the sentence follows clause by clause forward in time and mm-hmm. I think that's what's happening in this opening paragraph John Gritty Cole comes in we see and it's so the thing about it it's so accurate it's like I can see this so well it's such precise language and yet it's also very very poetic which poetic language like the better stuff is always more precise And then it unfolds his sentences, unfold step by step by step as John Grady Cole comes in and experiences what he's seeing. His father, his grandfather dead in the casket. He sees this after he passes a wall full of his forebears, only dimly understood. Mm -hmm. And I think that Cormac McCoy, after I got in listening to this lecture series by the teaching company, I went back and I started reading my favorite authors aside from Hemingway. And I started asking myself, okay, do my favorite authors write this way? Do they write these long, sometimes maybe even a little bit florid sentences with clauses that kind of step forward in time? And so I read Tolstoy, of course he does it. And I read McCarthy, of course he does it. Melville, of course he does it. And even Hemingway, who's kind of like known for the short terse sentences, he'll have these sentences in the middle of a paragraph mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. just unfold step by step, clause by clause with this beautiful descriptive precision. And I have started trying to write that way and it's a lot more freeing. Mm -hmm. And that is the end of my PSA about the teaching courses, um, lecture series on writing great sentences.
0: One of the things I love about what he does is he will, he's tweaking, his sentences are not as complex as you think they are, as they're meant to be when you experience them. Because if you hear them out loud, they come more naturally. But like what he'll do is he'll, he'll put a, f- a phrase or a clause in a different part of the sentence. So in that first sentence, the candle flame and the image of the candle flame is where it starts. But what he could have said is, when he entered the hall and shut the door, the candle flame and the image of the candle flame yeah. were caught in the pier glass, twisted and righted and themselves. But he, he changed And that, that, that thrusts you into the scene. What he's not interested in most of, when he does this is the scene, though. He's interested in the image that is at the core of the scene. So you can unpack the scene as you did a minute ago, and you can say, okay, he goes in, he looks at his father's, he sees the pictures of his ancestors, he sees his grandfather's body, and the story is off. The man who raised him, who owns the ranch, is gone. Everything unfolds from there. But he gives us the image first, and he recreates the structure of the sentence to, in a way, force that image to be something that we pay attention to. Um, David, what do you just to clarify for me, what do you mean by scene? just the action of the moment Mm -hmm. Uh, he walks in the door and he sees his grandfathers, you know, the, this, the, the action in whatever is going on on the page.
2: So it's almost like what the camera would be capturing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we could, and if we, if he had just said when he entered the hall and then shut the door behind him, then the first thing we're getting is, okay, there's this guy, we don't know who he is yet, but we know what he's doing. We know that he's entering the hall. And then the question for us as readers becomes, okay, so what's in the hall and why mm-hmm, is he there, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's the point of getting a sentence like that. Mm-hmm. But here, we're not asking that question because the first thing we're getting introduced to is this candle flame, but not just a candle flame, also an image of the candle flame, a reflection of the candle flame. And so as readers, our first question becomes trying to unravel what that image means as opposed to, what is going to happen next in the scene. Yes. And McCarthy is drawing us out of the, what's going to happen next in the scene quite often. Um, and I think when he does that, it's time to pay attention. Like that's, he, he's actually, he, he is consistent in telling us how to read him. He gives us like, like when you read the, 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 like Homer, Homer is pretty good or Shakespeare. They're pretty good about like, or the Bible pretty good at like giving us markers that pay attention. This next thing is coming mm-hmm. and doing it a lot. Um, or telling us how to like giving you clues for how to read him. Now it takes, as with Shakespeare, the Bible, and Homer, it takes time acclimating and learning to speak the formal language that McCarthy is speaking. But when he turns he inverts a sentence and gives us becomes image forward, if you will, like the bouquet of this paragraph is more image than than action, he's saying, Stop, we're gonna pause here for a second. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to subvert what you expect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, so I think that's the key thing. Like when that happens, that's, that's a hint that there's something that this is different in this moment. Heidi doesn't have a lot of time left and neither do I. So let's do some final thoughts here. Heidi, I know you need to go. So why don't you give your final thoughts just in case, um, just in okay. case you know you need to jump off. The reason
1: that I have to go is that my son, Jack, turned 15 yesterday and he's having his birthday party right Aww. now. So I have you're 15 lo- teen you're teenagers. His birthday, you're loading his yeah. saddlebags and
0: putting them on a horse and sending them I, south?
1: The, the party's over at three and they need to eat cake and sing to him and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff, so... I but I couldn't resist recording the podcast during the party. That's what's so great about having older kids. You just they just go outside and they can handle their own birthday party. I think that's the point but of this at book. At some point, they have to have a cake. Yep. Yeah. So when I picture Jack White in one year being the same age as John Grady Cole, I have, I have thoughts <laughs> um, on the age, the age choice of that Cormac McCarthy gave to John Grady. But I think that. Speaking as the resident lady of the group, my final thought is to the women reading this book, and that is hang in there. Like, I challenge you, do not give up on this book because it feels like a guy book to you. This is a great book.
0: There's lots of romance coming. It
1: is there is lots of romance coming, um, but there's that's not the reason to hang in there either. <laughs> this is a masterpiece about America, a masterpiece about the soul. This, and, and I would say, choose not to be offended by the language. Choose not to be offended by the violence. Let it impact you, but don't resist this novel because it's not what we're used to because it's not Jane Eyre because it's not some of our other easier to read this is not going to be the easiest one to read for those of you who are 10 who who might be challenged by that hang in there please if you don't that's okay too but I'm saying this book is worth it as an as a fellow woman who hasn't always loved um you know doesn't read westerns Um, I'm converted. I love this story. I love this novel. I love this novelist. I think he has something to offer. Hang in there. That's my final thought.
2: Thank you, Hardy. Um from my heart. (laughs) Thank you. From the bottom of your heart book. Um, from the from the bottom of your heart shelf. Tim, you wanna you wanna go? My closing thought is a request from a reader. This is a genuine request. From a reader who is familiar with with horses and all things horses, tell me what I should see when I read this sentence. The boy who rode on slightly before him sat a horse, not only as if he'd been born to it, which he was, but as if he were begot by malice or mischance into some queer land. Okay, that's not the part. Uh, the only part that I want to understand is the boy who rode on slightly before him Sat a horse. I want to know what it looks like for a rider to sit a horse. So I want to know that on Facebook. Tell me on Facebook what it means to sit a horse. You're saying that you're not someone who's a is a big horse guy. So I'm not. I'm not. But I've read these books and that phrase, he sat his horse, she sat her horse, shows up repeatedly. And I've looked up online. What does this mean to a to an equestrian, to a horse rider, to someone who's like, who works with horses a lot. And I can't find a straight answer. So I want someone who like has lived on a ranch or who's been around horses a lot to tell me. And I have a friend of mine who I asked who's kind of familiar with horses and she didn't know really what it meant, but it shows up everywhere in the Border Trilogy. So I'm hoping someone will find me on Facebook and be like, hey, this is what it would look like for someone to sit a horse. Should I, you, are you, so I don't respond to this, right?
0: no okay all right i just was clarifying that I, we weren't going to have silence if i just didn't say anything was <laughs> not over it was not a question for me it was a question for for the horse experts yeah. among our audience right so um in next year my wife and i are saving up hope, hoping to take a trip out west because we haven't gotten anywhere since the kids were born we wanted to do zion and bryce canyon or something like that you know do a national park and i'm dying to go horseback riding um Oh, rice yeah. canyon or something like that because we went horseback riding in the badlands and when we lived in idaho i rode a lot when i was a little kid um well we didn't have horses no not a lot a lot but fairly often we'd ride in the mountains and stuff like that so that's my i'm gonna be setting a horse in the Bryce canyon <laughs> nice <laughs> but i don't know what my uh my style of setting a horse is good sitting a horse is gonna be uh my final thought is this is gonna be fun it's uh It's going to be fun and a challenge to try to persuade people who are not huge fans of this book and its style and its mood and its tone and all that, that it's worth it. I came into Jane Eyre respecting it, uh, and I came out of it with much more affection for it. We've talked about this Mm. previously. And I hope that these people who, maybe right now, they mainly just have respect for Cormac McCarthy and his reputation, might come out of it feeling the way you and I, and I, and I think Heidi feel about this book. I've read it a bunch of times, not as many as you have, but, um, I read it at least every couple of years. I read it last spring too. So it'll be fun to, you know, try to convince people in a way that, that it's, that's as brilliant as we think it is. So I guess that's it though. Right, Tim, that's That's it for this week. All right. Well, then, uh, before we go, I just want to say, sorry, Logan, before we go, I just want to remind people about uh, our new show here at Goldberry Studios. It's called Withy Windle. It's Grant Pittman and I talking uh, about kids' books. It's for kids, for young readers. And there's going to be a lot of children's book authors and illustrators on it. Season one debuts uh, next week. The first episode has S.D. Smith. The second episode has Andrew Peterson. And the third episode has uh, Karina Young glazer the author of the um, Vanderbeekers books. So we got lots of great guests coming up. It's gonna be games and all kinds of things there. So you can go subscribe to that. Check out the trailer for it wherever you get podcasts: Spotify, Apple, whatever other you know podcast app you use. Don't forget about the the daily poem, and of course, Tim's Tim's firing away. And you know, with the uh, the plays, the thing. Tim,
2: before we go, do you want to give a pitch for what's coming up next on that? We recorded two nights ago a special bonus episode that is going to preview in a strange, in a funny way, Hamlet. Hamlet is our next big play, but my brother and my sister and my mom and I all got mic'd up. And we talked about the Macintosh family's first introduction to William Shakespeare Hmm. and my brother and my sister and my mom are really wonderful people. And they are some witty people also. So I, I think, It's worth a listen. There's a short, we just did a short podcast, about 40 minutes long. A little appetizer. A little appetizer. Nice. Well, I can't wait to
0: listen to that. That'll be up when? Should be up Friday. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, with that, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading.